Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. When was the last time you went through the day without comparing yourself to anyone? Without getting sucked into a social media rabbit hole, comparing the fullness of your life to the highlight reel of someone else's? Or trapped by self-criticism, over-focusing on how you could have done better if you just put a bit more effort in? If you're anything like me, avoiding these mental traps can be really challenging. There's a huge value in our culture placed on not just achievement, but on being a unique or special, even extraordinary individual. And with almost 8 billion people on the planet, there are bound to be some outliers. And we put those people up on a pedestal. And compared to them, it's easy to feel like you're coming up short. The truth is that we're all unique. And we're all ordinary. And accepting that ordinariness can help us avoid the trap of constant comparison, find peace with ourselves, and actually get more out of life. To talk about that, I'm here today, as usual, with Dr. Rick Hansen, and we're joined by a psychologist, author, and teacher, Dr. Ronald Siegel. Ron is an assistant professor of psychology part-time at Harvard Medical School, where he's taught for over 35 years. He also teaches internationally about the application of mindfulness and compassion practices in psychotherapy and other fields, and he's contributed to editing and writing several books, including professional texts like the second edition of Mindfulness and Psychotherapy, and his most recent book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are. So thanks for joining us, Ron. How are you doing today? Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm fine and delighted to be here. Ron, I'm really glad we're doing this. As, as you well know, we started this topic thread in Joshua Tree, Joshua Tree Park. We were both there for a week, several days overlapping, hanging out, and kind of bumping into each other in terms of our worldviews about this whole topic territory <laughs> of being ordinary. And we, we came to a really, really good place that was actually, for me personally, extremely valuable at the level of personal healing and growth. So I want to name that and thank you for it. And I'm sure we'll get into some of that here. And I think to a degree that's unusual on this podcast, you and I are good friends. And this topic mm. has gripped both of us quite personally. So as a way into it, I'm struck by a kind of irony that you, teaching at Harvard, you have a doctorate, you've authored books, along a number of dimensions. You've been also, I should add, married happily for quite a long time. So already we have probably easily five dimensions, in each one of which you're way out there on the positive end of the tail of the distribution. <laughs> you are not ordinary in a number of dimensions. And yet you ended up writing a book about the perils of being extraordinary or seeking to be extraordinary. And I just wonder how all that has landed for you and what drew you into this topic in the first place. This book actually began as a self-treatment project because mm -hmm. there I was in my mid-60s having indeed been involved for some four decades in psychotherapy, whether as a client, as a psychotherapist, as a clinical psychologist, as well as some four decades involved in contemplative practice, Buddhist practices and the like, and, and taking meditation and, and this path seriously. And you would think that after that, and given this orientation, that I would have arrived at something like a secure, coherent, stable sense of self. But I hadn't. I was noticing that, you know, if I were to be honest about it, my sense of myself continues to go up and down. You know, I could have a psychotherapy session where I felt like, yeah, I was connected, related, that was useful. I had some insights, and I'd think, I'm a gifted psychotherapist. I'd have another one that fell flat, and I'd be thinking, you know, I could have gone into so many fields. This is clearly not my calling. <laughs> and this is happening after decades of doing this and practice. And yes, it's true. I have written books and done all sorts of things. And I've had the privilege to teach all over the world and have wonderful friends and colleagues like you, for example. And yet the fluctuations were continuing. Either this kind of collapsing feeling of, oh my gosh, I failed. Oh, I didn't do a good job. Their book is selling more than mine. Sorry, folks, I know this sounds like horrible, but this is the truth, you know? You know I'm aware <laughs> that these problems are, you know, like first world, yeah. you know, like first, first, first world problems. And I know how <laughs> ridiculous it is, but this was my felt and actual experience. Yeah. 
And yeah. I was thinking, all right, you know, I know there's this mythology out there that if somebody were truly successful, they wouldn't be feeling this stuff. They wouldn't be going up and yeah. down based on whether somebody liked me or not, or liked my work or not. But this was my experience, if I was to be honest about it. And I had various hypotheses. One was, I'm fundamentally inadequate as a human being. Maybe this just, maybe I'm just, you know, <laughs> broken from the beginning. Another one was, you know, I never worked through what it was like to be picked last for kickball in elementary school. And it's still there. And I've still got the trauma of that. And there's actually some truth to that second one. We can get, we can get into that, not kickball per se, but the legacy of all the traumas. And here I'm including very small T traumas, but the disappointments, yeah. the hurts, this kind of thing. And then another hypothesis, which is that, you know, maybe there's something more universal about this. I started just looking at my own clinical practice and gosh, virtually everybody I worked with had difficulties in this area and they fall into two broad camps, either mostly feeling inadequate or feeling kind of special, but constantly stressed out, trying to not slip, trying to hold on to this position of somehow being above the median or special or popular or smart or what, whatever it might be, but that everybody was in some way struggling with this. And I came to suspect that it's pretty close to universal. And then I started reading the evolutionary psychology literature and realized that there's a consensus that this is a hugely powerful force in mammalian and primate life. And the way it shows up in humans is with this kind of fluctuating self-esteem and our concern for trying to keep it up, pursuing the boosts and avoiding the crashes. So I want to ask about the last thing that you said, which is that evolutionary psychology literature. And I don't want to take too long here because there's so much practical in what you're saying that I think is really interesting for people. But when I first started exploring this topic to prep for the conversation. My very first question essentially was, is this a cultural problem or is this a human-animal problem? Because it's really easy for us to relate to this on the level of the culture. Almost everybody uses social media. We're massively overconnected to each other. There's always something to compare yourself to. This is a, a modern problem is one way to frame it. And another way to frame it is that there's something that's almost baked into the nature of being human that predisposes us to excessive, unnecessary, painful comparison to other members of our species. And so kind of quickly here, what do you think about that? Well, I think it's both. Yeah. And on the baked in human animal side of it, if you go to the African savanna and on the so-called safari, which means riding around in a Jeep with a naturalist, um, the naturalist <laughs> will point out, here's this grouping, there's a dominant male surrounded by mm -hmm. a reproductively promising group of females. And over in the next field, there's another group of males doing the species-specific equivalent of playing basketball or soccer, trying to hone their skills to be dominant. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. huh, species after species? Why are they doing that? And kids, you can take four-year-olds and put them in a room together. And inside of a few minutes, they'll organize themselves into what are called transitive dominance hierarchies. The idea of transitive, like in algebra, if A is bigger than B and B is bigger than C, then A is bigger than C. This is very strongly hardwired. And you might think, well, why? Well, as mm -hmm. it turns out, if we think in terms of the selfish gene, if you will, the idea that mm -hmm. reverse engineering natural selection, whatever was good for genes, that's what got favored for genes getting passed on. This dominant stuff got favored. So yeah. we might imagine yeah. that there are ancient hominids hanging around, holding hands, singing kumbaya, being only cooperative, but their DNA didn't win out quite as often as this other DNA. However, lest we fall into total despair, we also have instincts for cooperation. We also have instincts for nurturing. We also have instincts for connecting. And those can be cultivated. Those can be reinforced. And in fact, that's going to be part of our salvation from this. But the competitive stuff, pretty strong. And as you point out, in social media, in advertising, across the board, this is amplified by cultures. But the interesting thing is almost all cultures amplify this. They almost all suggest in various ways that if only you could come up on top in various kinds of comparative measures, then you would be happy and satisfied and live a good life. Mm -hmm. So there's this juxtaposition here really of objective and subjective. So objectively, 
in various distributions, height, intellectual ability, to some extent, certainly, other kinds of talents, acquired and then innate as well, people do sort out on these distributions, whereas some people are out there on the tail. We have a disconnect here between that fact and the subjective experience of inadequacy. Yeah. That curling over your gut when you just feel that you were left out. So there's this disconnect between objective reality and the internal experience of it, much as it could be sensible, obviously, to think about the, the value to you and those you care about in attaining some kind of relatively high status or acquiring various resources that has its objective merit. On the other hand, there's the subjective problem of getting caught up in endless striving or, let's say, viciousness toward others. I hope I'm not being overly abstract, but I just want to flag the difference because there's a distinction between striving. Striving per se is not problematic. It's the experiences we have around striving and getting caught up in problematic forms of striving, right? That's problematic. We may well have some biological basis for striving and then throw in all the other cultural stuff. The question isn't about striving per se, right? Right. It's our attitude about striving and our relationship to striving. That's the key issue. Is that not correct? Yes, that's the key issue. Well, but it's also behavioral. It's also being addicted to striving. Yeah, because problematically for sure. Problematically yeah. addicted to striving, yeah. right? Because there's a difference between, let me tackle both of those. Many of us are addicted to striving because the boost that we feel, that feeling of, hey, I succeeded, feels so good. It's uh, and we know, you know, it does seem to be this dopamine squirt, right? And the nucleus accumbens every time we succeed at something that feels so good. And the collapse of the feeling of failure feels so bad that we keep striving, even though, hey, we don't actually need to anymore. Yeah. We've actually arrived enough. So there's that aspect of it. And then there's this other aspect of it, which is that in us as humans, what we experience in our consciousness is either feeling worthy and good about ourselves or crappy and bad about ourselves in response to all these you know comparative winnings and losings these these comparisons and that is simply how it manifests how this pattern that we see in other animals manifests in humans it manifests mm-hmm. in this subjective experience could i do just a really quick exercise with everybody? i want to yeah, make it a little bit alive just think of a moment where you really felt like you had succeeded at something that's important to you. And it it could be that you did something and you felt that you were either intelligent or attractive or well-liked for what you did. And just remember what that was like and take a moment to tune into the body, like exaggerate it just for a moment, play acting, and just breathe into it and just enjoy it for a moment because unfortunately it's not going to last. And I'm going to now invite you to do the opposite and remember or imagine a time where the opposite happened, where you felt like, oh, you know, you were left out or didn't do a good job or people didn't like what you were doing. And then exaggerate that posture. And don't worry, this one won't last either. You can now kind of come back to neutral where you're neither better nor worse than anybody, great or terrible, but you're just here as an ordinary human being. One of those states can feel so good. And the other state can feel so bad that we really do get addicted to trying to strategize and arrange our lives to produce as many of the first states and as few of the second states as possible. And you're talking, Rick, about the kind of striving, which is simply engaging your talents to do something useful, to perhaps help the world. And absolutely, that is a wonderful aspect of being alive as a human being. But it often carries with it this other subjective side of either inflation or deflation. And it's the ways in which that starts to run our lives and all the things we do to hold on to the inflation and get rid of the deflation that makes us unnecessarily unhappy. And in fact, gets in the way of accomplishing things a lot of times because so often people are in situations, you and I know this as clinicians, right? Where "Mm, I don't wanna apply for the job, a little bit of a long shot job because I don't think I'll be able to tolerate that collapse feeling that happens from not getting it. 
I don't want to ask that person out on a date because they're a high value person in my mind. And if they turn me down, I'm going to feel like I am really badly inadequate. So I'm not even going to risk it because I want to avoid the painful feeling. That is so super clear. And I'm going to remember the squirt on the one hand of dopamine and the collapse around feeling less than others, inadequacy, shame, really. Yeah. You know, Paul Gilbert's work on compassion-focused therapy and so forth, and he really talks about the expression that you see in primate bands. I think you know the research here better than I do, where the subordinate monkey drops its head in shame, curls around, and it's, it's an appeasement gesture to avoid right. being attacked further by the alpha monkey, as it were. Right. And so we and know that feeling. You got to do it. I'll just kind of toss it out. We have a shared background in early Buddhism, and you're familiar with the structure. The Buddha talked about the gratification, the danger, and the escape. So you've sketched the gratification, which includes the avoidance of pain, right? We got that. And then we have the danger. And then there's the escape. How do we practice with this? And I'm sure we'll get more and more into that. But that structure right there, yeah. the gratification, the danger, and the escape is such a good summary. Well, you're pointing to one of the pathways out of this. And first, truth in advertising. I'm not free of this stuff, and I wrote the book. So, so, <laughs> so, so this is about inching toward freedom here. Part of the pathway out, one of the fascinating things, and you alluded to this in terms of relationships, is that probably one of the most reliable ways to step off this kind of self-esteem roller coaster is through safe, deep, honest social connection with other people. Mm. When we're with a close friend and we're talking about our foibles and we're talking about our honest felt experience, we go from being a me and you, we become a we, right? I, I start to feel us in this and we're together in this process of, you know, trying to inch towards sanity if we possibly can. And so safe social connection is a wonderful counterbalance and antidote to this. And ironically, there's, there's a kind mm. of reciprocal relationship here because when we're caught in this, it actually gets in the way of safe social connection, right? As, as you were saying, you know, we do things that are about me and mine and winning or showing off or having people like us or something that gets in the way of really being a good friend. So there's this fascinating thing where when we can have safe social connection, it allows us to relax around this stuff more. And when we relax around this stuff more, we're able to have more safe social connection. So there's actually a kind of mm. virtuous cycle that can pull us out of this. This can be boiled down into a phrase that I use in my clinical work a lot and people find useful, which is make a connection, not an impression. Mm. Make a connection, not an mm. impression. And there are so many situations that we walk into, we start feeling a little socially anxious. How's this going to go? What are people going to think? We can actually proactively shift our attention to what if I just focus on connecting to this person? What does being ordinary look like to you, Ron? I have my moments where I actually successfully embody it. So I'll, I'll report from those moments. Yeah. In those moments, I'm open-hearted because I appreciate that while I have a legacy of thousands of little disappointments, traumas, failures, and feelings, feeling less than moments, so does everybody else. And I have a sense yeah. of we're in this together and I'm interested in not injuring you if I can manage to not injure you and just noticing our shared experience. So that's one aspect of it. And there's an open-heartedness that comes from it. Another aspect is a lot of experiences of what a workshop participant, uh, it was a mindfulness and psychotherapy workshop, described as the cosmic chuckle. These are the moments where we find ourselves, we find our minds really, doing something automatic that is fundamentally ridiculous is, is not going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. And we actually manage to chuckle with the, oh, there I or it goes again. There's a kind of monitoring 
of all of the different ways in which my heart and mind are getting hooked on this stuff. It's not about becoming ascetic around striving. It's not about never producing anything, nor is it about not enjoying praise. But it is about watching the whole process and having a sense of there I go getting attached to that, there I go avoiding that, and the kind of chuckle that comes from it. Mm. And the other thing it's about, it's about fuller engagement. Because at least what I find is when I'm doing something and I'm not super focused on how am I doing? What do other people think about it? What grade would I give myself? I'm just more engaged in the process. I feel it more fully because my mm. attention isn't divided mm -hmm. between what I'm doing and this constant evaluative chatter about how I'm doing. It seems to me that there are a lot of benefits that are very understandable that are associated with dropping what I'll call the myth of extraordinary here. For starters, like other forms of acceptance practice that we've talked about on the podcast, it can help us to use a phrase that Rick has used in the past, drop the stone, mm -hmm. connected with a lot of these different concerns and considerations that we can ruminate back in the back of our mind about. It can help us lighten up about a lot of stuff, lighten up about when we fall short, when others fall short, lighten up about our own nature as these funky human animals that have these weird baked in things that we wrestle with, but there's often very little we can do about them on a nature level. So we have to do all of these other fancy practices of various kinds to try to break them down. It can help us lighten up about self-criticism. You were talking about where a lot of that slump that people experience comes from a very self-critical place. We can relax around selfing altogether. Mm -hmm. Hey, maybe that's a pretty cool thing that we've talked about on the podcast in the past. But at the same time, people have a lot of identification with and attachment to this idea because we are all unique. That's like a true fact. We are unique. And I think that part of the 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 push-pull between the two of you, maybe a little bit from my perspective, is between the obvious narcissistic supplies associated with feeling unique authentically. There's a certain amount of evidence that connection with those healthy supplies can actually be a really powerful resource for people. There's some evidence that people who suffer from like narcissistic personality disorder do so because they have a deep lack of narcissistic supplies that are healthy in nature, things like that. And just in general, getting off that treadmill can be a pretty painful process for people, I think, because this idea of ordinariness has such a negative connotation in the culture. Like nobody wants to be ordinary, right? Oh my God, we all want to be extraordinary. So a lot of benefits to the practice, but meted against it are these challenges associated with it. So what do you think helps people come into contact with that ordinariness in like a healthy way or how people can think about this in a way that might be supportive for them? These are great perspectives that you bring up. A small thing is cultures vary a bit about this. Yeah, for sure. There are cultures that, you know, there's a Jap I understand to be a Japanese saying that is the tallest shoot of bamboo is the first to be cut. Yeah, nail that stands up gets hammered down. That's not a celebration of be the standout one. So I do think we in America here live in a highly individualist culture and a very materialistic culture that really doubles down on this idea that if you're not, you know, an internet influencer or have started your own startup by the time you're 30, <laughs> you know, you're toast. And yeah, so there are cultural aspects to this. However, I'd like to address the uniqueness part and separate out our wonderful uniqueness from special that has a value judgment valence to it. Yeah, it feels like a lot of your issue here, Ron, is with hierarchy, more so than with extraordinariness, if that kind of makes sense. Yes, we're all extraordinary. I mean, the fact I'm digesting lunch right now, like that is amazing. Like, how am I doing that? <laughs> you know, the chemistry, the oh my God, you know, the 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 millions of years of evolution that, that are making this, you know, I'm like a really cool dude. This is this is like the most sophisticated thing. So so we're all extraordinary. And we're extraordinary in our uniqueness too. It's just when we look at a field of dandelions and they're all beautiful. We tend not to go, you know, it's a really beautiful field of dandelions, but the model dandelion, the ones the others want to be like and are striving mm -hmm. to usurp is the 237th in from the left, 87 rows from the front. Now that, that is a special dandelion. Unfortunately, that's how we operate as humans. We're hooked on this. So absolutely appreciating 
the particular constellation of strengths and weaknesses and culture and identities that's each of us, fantastic. It's the putting value judgments on it and the emotional experience of getting attached to the ups and avoiding the downs. That's what seems to be problematic. And it's really about shifting which of our instincts are we going to lean in on? Are we going to mostly lean in on the instincts that are about competition and dominance and winning in this way? And I've been mentioning a lot of, there is some genderedness to this, you know, to some degree, at least some women are more concerned with, am I being a good enough friend? Am I being a good enough parent? There's some differences in terms of how we jigger this. So it's not all about external Mm -hmm. success or that kind of thing. But what's so interesting is that we're all hooked on one criteria or another, even if it's not always the same criteria. So what do you think helps people get off of that hook? Essentially connecting with their ordinary nature, stepping off of the treadmill, dropping the stone, choose your analogy of choice here. These are very strong instincts and they're very powerful. So I think we have to approach them in a multimodal way. I think we have to tackle them in basically at least three levels. We got to work with our heads, our hearts, and our habits. Mm. With our heads, it's about noticing what are my beliefs about this? Where did you get your rating scale from? For me, for example, like being intelligent or articulate was what I was going to hang on to because it wasn't going to be my skills at kickball. <laughs> that clearly wasn't going to work. Oh, same boat. <laughs> you know? Very much same boat. <laughs> so how do you get hooked on this particular criteria? And who were the people in your life that pointed this out? How does the grading system work? And the fascinating thing we see about this is, gosh, our grading system is pretty weird. It's really what just happened, that we could have mm, done all sorts mm-hmm. of wonderful things that we felt good about ourselves for before, but yeah. mm, something goes wrong now, collapse, you know, we're, we're back. So just beginning to examine that, like, what are the assumptions? Mm. What are the core beliefs? How did I get hooked on this? How is my society yeah. reinforcing these? And the more we can see where this come from, how am I being fed these messages, that's going to help. So that's kind of the head level of it. And also reflecting on, does it work or not? The head level, we start to see that I can't really win at this game. Yeah. And there are two reasons for it. One is something that I made up a name for it, narcissistic recalibration. And it refers to the mm. fact that things that used to float our boat self-esteem-wise no longer do. Sure. Remember what it was like to put those multicolored plastic or wooden rings that were each a, you know, they were like donuts and they fit on a pole and you got it in size order. So you got this rainbow cone at the end. You know, this is a childhood toy that, that <laughs> both your generation, Forrest and, and Rick and mine can, can I, relate to. I do and, remember And this, it was yeah. quite an accomplishment. And look, mommy, look, daddy. And you know, this is it. But if you were to do that this morning, it probably wouldn't float your boat quite as much. What used to work stops working because we habituate to everything and we habituate Mm -hmm. to whatever our levels of accomplishment are. The other thing that Mm -hmm. makes it not work consistently is what goes up goes down. So let's say that we're really great at something. We won the Olympic gold medal. What are the chances of doing it four years from now, eight years from now? Sure. So we can use our heads to see, hmm, it's not going to work. Our grading system is insane. And, you know, we learn this. This isn't about the fundamental nature. This is something that we learned in some way. On the heart level, it's mostly about slowly developing the courage and resourcing ourselves in the way that, Rick, that you've taught about so eloquently over the years, resourcing ourselves to be able to visit the pain with an open heart. So that when something goes wrong for me today and I start feeling the sinking feeling, I will close my eyes and I will ask myself, what does this remind me of? And if I'm in an opened state, particularly if I've been kind of meditating more or just less defended, I'll remember what it was like to be the little kid trailing after my brother and feeling I wasn't as good as the big kids. One of the things that keeps us trapped in this is when the new disappointments happen today, they resonate with the old injuries. And they take on extra power because they remind us of the old injuries. So working with our parts involves really examining and really doing some therapeutic work with ourselves to heal some of the past hurts. 
And on the habit level, it's really about once we notice that I can't maintain this, this isn't really contributing to my happiness, then we start to see what are the habits that I'm engaged in that are really mostly about trying to keep my self-esteem afloat. And can I experiment with letting go of some of those and developing other habits that lead me in the direction of more sustainable things like engagement, like safe social connection, like generosity and gratitude, the kinds of habits that are simply more reliable and aren't subject to this very conditional kind of self-esteem. We need to tackle it on all three levels and, you know, and, and be kind to ourselves when it's slow progress because <laughs> these are strong instincts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we have this structure, right? Head, heart, habits. Maybe I'll just toss in a couple of things here that I got out of talking with you and hanging out with you and Joshua Tree related to my own history, which I've written about and it's quite out there of feeling like I grew up and I ended up with a big hole in my heart that normal range experiences of feeling connected and valued and included were for me kind of a thin soup. And then I did a progressive path over the years of internalizing in a way that was a series of, using a phrase you're familiar with, a series of corrective emotional experiences that I really focused on internalizing. That was a real journey for me. And so a couple of things that I've gotten from talking with you, Ron, that have been really helpful for me, and I'm not sure where they fit in the head, heart, or habits category. First was this presumption of relatedness. And in our conversations, when we started talking about, you know, what's your deepest, most internal sense of yourself? For me, from my history, it's that I'm alone. Mm. It's on me. There are others around, but rescue is not on the way. And it has been very reparative to start to explore what it's like to presume relatedness from the beginning. Hmm. from the beginning and presume it initially maybe conceptually like you recognize reality oh yeah there's friendship there's friendliness or other people we're connected but to feel it the felt presumption boom, boom as bedrock paradigm of relatedness from the get-go just had an extraordinary power to dissolve feelings of inadequacy in hmm. me still 50 years later that might mm -hmm. swirl up and another thing I just wanted to flag related to our kind of shared background in the contemplative traditions in which there's a very serious critique of self in the narrow sense of ego, distinct from the person process altogether, which there is clearly a person process. So one of the things that starts to happen more and more is a kind of resting increasingly in ordinary mind, you know, the Zen term, just ordinary mm -hmm. mind, and in which... There's simply the thusness, the thisness, the suchness of the moment, and there really aren't comparisons. I mean, there's a recognition that there are mountains and, and lakes, and there's a some sort of distinction between them. There's a Ron process, there's a Rick process, there's a forest process, but at some fundamental level, there's just thisness in this moment of thisness. And right there as well, as soon as we start dropping into that felt sense of thisness, ba-bum, dropping into that, woof, liberates all suffering. You're sort of describing where the book ultimately goes, because yeah. it's where I ultimately go with this, which sounds like where you ultimately go with this, which is that there's all the processes of sort of psychological healing and psychological reorienting in the world. But ultimately, if we really look deeply at this, we see, oh my gosh, though, all these narratives about me are constructed. This is all a, a house of mirrors. And it is possible to, at moments, for me, it's not a sustained awareness, but it is possible at moments to drop into this awareness of noticing how it is constructed. And it is just thusness or thisness or ontological experience where there is this organism and there's this tree and this organism's looking at this tree and it's beautiful and whole just as it is. And it's not in a realm of judgments at all. 
And, you know, this is one of the fruits of contemplative practice. And fascinatingly, it's one of the fruits that's happening sometimes in psychedelic assisted psychotherapy, where people will drop into this way of being and way of understanding, which ordinarily takes quite a lot of disciplined practice to notice. It doesn't stay there. And I don't, it's not a panacea because people drop mm. back into their old perspective as well. But yeah, no, ultimately that is where we are freest. I think both you and I in our, in our work are always involved in the dance between the sort of personal psychological and the kind of profound insight that can come from transcendent experience and deep meditative practice. Yeah. I think that's so much of what we're talking about here, just to simplify it down a little bit, is the classic what drives behavior, and it's generally pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to avoid the collapse of the self-criticism, the self-judgment, the negative self-comparison to others, all of that. And we're trying to pursue the positive hit, the squirt, as you put it earlier, of dopamine or reward chemical associated with feeling achieving, feeling special, feeling like our position in the band has been secured. And this takes me to something really interesting, which is that in my own life personally, when I have been able to get to the place that I think you're both describing here, which this kind of sea of enoughness may be one way to talk about it, it has felt relieving. Yeah. It has felt fantastic. It oh, has felt gosh, great. Oh. I, I don't know if I would describe myself as a achievaholic necessarily, but I would describe myself as maybe driven by some uncomfortable experiences with kids early in life. Somebody who has a pretty well-tuned social radar and maybe a little overly sensitive to my own position inside of the social hierarchy. And inside of that context, it can feel really wonderful to feel like everything just is and everything's just okay. Yeah. Like we're floating along in the saltwater bath and we're just kind of being carried by it. And I just want to highlight that as a way in which everything we're talking about now, about ordinariness, is itself a remarkably wonderful and fulfilling experience and can be for its own sake, even outside of all of the other benefits that somebody might get from it. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it really is an extraordinary gift and that idea of dropping the stone, it's like, what if I wasn't an organism under threat anymore? Because at least for yeah. me, the vast majority of the anxieties I have in the course of the day, the vast majority of the threats are in this realm. The daily fluctuations, when I open my email with some trepidation and I ask myself, what am I afraid of here? I'm afraid something's going to come along that's going to upset me. To not have that be so important is it's a tremendous delight and it allows yeah. for very simple pleasures to be very rich and very fulfilling my feeling ron is that i'm probably a bit more like you actually in that i really feel the up and the down of this process i feel the good of the positive social comparison i feel the pain of the negative social comparison and i am seeking a balance between those extremes as a positive thing that I'm actively pursuing. Mm -hmm. My sense of you, Dad, really, since I've been maybe about 15 years old or so, is that you're just not that caught up in that. Is that maybe the highs feel good, and yeah, you don't want people to rag on you, and you don't want to negatively compare yourself, but like, it's just not so much a thing for you. And my sense with this is that this is super dispositional. There are some people who are very caught up in this process, and there are some people who are not. So that takes me to kind of a curiosity around, okay, is this just about different strokes for different folks, different things that can aid different people? Or is there something dispositional inside of this process where some people really can get the positives without having the negatives associated with it so much? And so maybe I would start just by asking, is that true to your experience, Dad? Well, there's so much in this. And I want to say, certainly, for a very long time, I was extremely vulnerable to narcissistic injury. Little things would wound me deeply. And it was because it was kind of like I didn't have any shock absorbers inside because I lacked the normal developmental process of internalizing healthy social supplies to build up healthy mechanisms, processes that would maintain an equilibrium of reasonable basic sense of worth and value. And also having internalized a lot of criticism, I had a lot of that going on. So 
That's kind of where I started. And then because I was aware of it, I used a method that Ron and I argued about there in the desert until we came to this wonderful relational union that transcended all differences. But for me, it was <laughs> extremely helpful to look for and let myself have the experiences that I longed for but were missing when I was young. And in a kind mm. of retroactive, reparative process, I worked my way, including very all the way down to very young layers inside. And for me, that was a real healing. Now, mm. what Ron and I argued about, and I'm going to let you <laughs> take this further on, was that for some people, their addiction, to use that term, their craving for narcissistic supplies was so intense that they couldn't use my method. But it still was a method that worked for me. But I want to call out that exception. For some people, that particular path, really taking in healthy supplies, worked for me. As a quick note, just because we've used the phrase a couple of times and people might not be familiar with it, Dad, would you mind defining narcissistic supplies? Yeah, the idea being that we have natural needs for mirroring, like the myth of Narcissus, and we have natural needs for praising. Every child needs to believe that they are the one and only special one in their parents' eyes. Yeah, and, totally. Right, they're, they're normal needs to feel included, to feel wanted, to feel part of the group. And as Ron talks about very eloquently, we are designed to crave that because those hominids and humans who didn't have that craving did not work really hard to be part of the group and to be top dog in the group, and they were less likely to pass on their genes. So it's kind of normal that we have those, those needs. The problem becomes when people don't get enough of those normal needs met, and then you toss in other variables like their particular culture, toss in other variables that Alice Miller wrote about eloquently that is some of Ron's in my life story, the drama of the gifted child in which you are gifted in some ways, but so you're both held up and you're constantly vulnerable to falling short. Anyway, so I'm, I'm saying a lot about my own personal journey here, hopefully not too much, but just to answer your question from when you kind of knew me, which is when I started to become much more successful. One of the things I learned, and I know you know this well, Ron, is that as you start getting more approval, if you move into selfing in relationship to it, if you move into grasping or clutching or craving, you immediately start to suffer. So paradoxically for me, this kind of run of success has both helped me do the last little bit, the frosting on the cake of internalizing retroactive repair. And also, it's been a great teaching that as soon as you get caught up in me, bingo, instantly you start suffering more. And that's been a real teaching. Pursue excellence, ignore fame. And I think that's just a sweet spot where you pursue excellence, which really fundamentally is about service. If you're moved by service, and you're lived by love, that's really your driving force. And then that becomes what carries you along. And I know this is where you're centered, Ron. If you're really centered in love and service and contribution, and that's your primary current lifting and carrying you along, then it's a lot easier you know, <laughs> to weather the winds. You know, Enjoy them when they're warm and balmy and people like you. Try to steer clear from people who are jerks about negative feedback while trying to learn from it as best you can. Yeah. But at the heart of it all, you're lived by love. You're lived by service. And that solves all kinds of problems. Yeah, absolutely. And service is one of the other paths out of this kind of preoccupation. I just want to tease apart one thing in what you're talking about, which is that love versus, again, it's this idea of specialness. I think we can love little kids as super special in their uniqueness without them having to be better than other little kids. Right. Yeah. And that that's what's key is recognizing the other, seeing the other clearly, appreciating them. So what are the applications or implications of this for raising kids? And I think one fundamental one is that let's say Suzanne comes home and she's really bummed out because she didn't make the baseball team. And one approach, which is consistent with the individualism and the, the sort of 
competitive comparison of the cultures to say, oh, honey, I'm so sorry that it didn't work out, but you were a star on the basketball team in the fall and you did great in mathletes and you're a terrific kid. The other one would be to say, oh, sweetheart, I'm so sorry. You know, when I was about your age, I was really into drama and I didn't make the school play and I really wanted to be in the play. And I felt so broken hearted. I felt this horrible sinking feeling. It was hard to be with that for a while. Let me give you a hug. You know, we all go through this stuff. It happens to all of us. So one of them is putting the eggs in the basket, if you will, of reestablishing the kind of narcissistic supply is you're a winner. The other one is putting eggs in the basket of you are loved and perfect just as you are. It's the Mr. Rogers approach, you know. It's a little contrary to the thrust here. And I think being careful about, just like you said, the way that we offer feedback and acknowledgement is important, including with kids. That said, I'm just astonished routinely at how bad most people are about simply acknowledging really quite wholesome, effortful, honorable, sincere, remarkable efforts by so many people whether it's just the effort that went into making a good dinner that night or taking another person into account or accomplishing something that's not easy. It's remarkable to me how actually bad so many people are at giving appropriate acknowledgement and reassurance to other people that would actually not feed their egos and their vanities and their arrogances, but would calm them down yeah. and help them know, hey, I see you. I like you. I appreciate you. You're good. You're fine. And, and I just want to come back for a moment, Forrest, to your really interesting question about, are there temperamental differences here? I suspect that there are. I suspect that there are differences that are shaped by our genes that are shaped by our upbringing and what happens in our family. And Rick was alluding to being relatively introverted. I think that that may make for ups and downs that where the criteria are somewhat different than the ups and downs that are central mm. for extroverts. Sure. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Right. That it may have more to do with how am I doing with my inner process here? and a little bit less with who said something positive or who said something negative. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that's a really insightful observation, actually, because I would totally categorize myself as an extrovert. And maybe inside of that, there is a certain external locus of control that can happen sometimes Yeah, compared to somebody who maybe has more of an internal sense of the ability to change their life or derive values that fill them up from the inside or whatever it might be. So maybe with that as a good setup, we're talking a little bit about positive aspects associated with positive self-esteem or feeling special or healthy narcissistic supplies, all of that good stuff. There's obviously a huge self-esteem movement broadly in mental health, psychology, the whole thing. We can have a conversation about whether or not that's a good thing maybe or whether that's compatible with everything that you're saying here today, Ron. But my massive oversimplification is that there are probably some good things associated with having some good self-esteem. And also there are probably some challenges associated with this whole comparison culture that we've fallen into. Yeah. So what do you think helps people get the good benefits without getting sucked into the psychological traps? Two things. One is what we really know about is that negative self-esteem is a problem. Yeah, totally. If we're hooked on some kind of narrative, some kind of core belief that I'm less than, worse than, below others, that has all sorts of implications. Either, as you, Forrest, pointed out earlier on, either we wind up compensating for it or we wind up shrinking, being depressed, avoidant, all that. So no question about that. The observation that people who are in bad situations in life often feel negative self-esteem actually led in the 1980s a group of psychologists and others in California to have this huge task force. It was a government task force on self-esteem and social responsibility. And they got a quarter million dollars in funding. And the idea was it would be a social vaccine against everything that goes wrong. So, you know, <laughs> they, they discovered that people who are in gangs, actually, if you really talk to them, felt lousy about themselves. People who got pregnant at a young age often felt not so good about themselves, these, these kinds of things. So 
I know we'll do this. And the government even thought, the legislature actually thought it'll be revenue neutral because when we improve set people's self-esteem, they'll be more productive citizens and we'll get more tax revenue. So it actually won't cost anything. Oh man. The net result of several years of study was it didn't work. And one of the reasons it didn't work was because they got the causal arrow wrong. When you're actively engaged in your life and you are accomplishing things, you do tend somewhat to have the feeling that you got with the multicolored rings, right? You get some of those positive feelings of I'm doing okay here. But the idea was that if we could only boost self-esteem, then we would have people avoid things like incarceration. Sure, no. yeah. But here we're talking about this particular kind of self-esteem, which is comparative self-esteem, not what I think when Rick's talking about narcissistic supplies, you're talking about a sense of worth a sense of basic value in the world, which we might call a profound self-acceptance, like I fit into this world. So we're really talking about this comparative self-esteem stuff. That's actually not so helpful. However, recognizing our skills, celebrating them, engaging them, especially using them for the benefit of ourselves and others, but not with, hey, look at me being the main thrust of it, Fine when you're two with the rings, not so great when you're professional, the hey, look at me part. That is very sustaining. So we're, we're in this tricky territory where it's both about loving ourselves, right? And taking in the love and taking in these resources and not being attached to the whole narrative about self at the same time. Yeah. So feeling yeah. the love, but not taking it personally in a bizarre way. Uh, I know that sounds bizarre. No, but- I, I think that makes total sense. Yeah. What do you think, Dad? It's the seeking and the clinging to social status, messages of worth, that's problematic. And I think there are multiple really powerful ways to release that seeking. And certainly one of them, you know, it's been one for me, has been to lean into actually receiving ordinary, simple, everyday experiences of feeling appreciated, included, befriended, liked, loved, capable, and so forth. That's been actually really helpful for me. One has to be careful about it, that of course it doesn't trigger the longings that are problematic. So if we could kind of summarize this, I think of this saying that works really well in print, love yourself, just don't love your self. Yeah. Separate it out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) In a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know if this is part of your experience, Rick, because you've studied so much about different ways of taking in the good, in essence, of allowing in the narcissistic supplies. It feels to me like when I'm blocking that, when I'm resisting somebody saying, that was lovely what you did, or I appreciate it, or I like the way you said that, or something like that, and I'm starting to deflect, there's this concept from uh, psychoanalysis called reaction formation. And it's when we sort of do the opposite of what we want because we're so afraid of the desire. And I think Mm. this is what happens. I I think the blocking of it, which actually does rob us from the pathway that you're describing and that has been a terribly useful pathway for you of letting in the love and the acknowledgement, we block it out of a kind of reaction formation because we're so afraid of our, I, I mm. am so afraid of my hunger for this and the yeah, part of me that yeah. can be a total junkie, a total addict going after this stuff that I don't want to even let it in lest I do what you're talking about that's yeah. dangerous, which is getting hooked on it. Yeah, for me, an immensely useful practice has been feeling normally worthy. Just as I'm not extraordinary in my goodness, I'm probably not extraordinary in my badness. And one of the phrases that I've heard from my dad is negative grandiosity, and that's a phrase that has been also super useful for me. Because we can build ourselves up as these problematic figures in much the same way that we build ourselves up in narcissistic ways where we think that we're just oh so special. And just as we're not special in our goodness a lot of the time, We're not special in our badness either, but we are normally worthy. We are worthy simply because we are here. Not for who we are, but that we are here. And that's been very, very useful for me. I'm so glad you're highlighting this because that's also one of the extraordinary gifts of being ordinary. We're not Mm. so bad. 
<laughs> you know, yeah, <laughs> we're not it's so bad. We're just we're just like all the other, you know, eight billion organisms on the planet trying to figure this out. And yeah, sometimes we're sweet and lovely and wonderful. And yeah, sometimes we grab the bigger chocolate chip cookie and we feel bad about it. But you know, we're not so terrible. We are. What, what was the phrase? Um, grandly negative. Negative grandiosity. Negative grandiosity. Yeah. yeah. No, it's great. You know, we're not especially horrible. You know, <laughs> we're just like ordinarily horrible. <laughs> <laughs> and we're among friends, and we're among friends, and we can hold hands, and we can joke, and we can support each other. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that that's probably the perfect note to end the episode <laughs> on for a wide variety of reasons. Ron, it was totally great doing this with you today. Thanks so much yeah. for taking the time. An absolute pleasure, and thank you both for your your perspectives. And I've been marinating in this, you know, thinking about this, having done a book, but yeah. really lovely to hear your thoughts about the territory, also. Rick and I had a great time talking with Dr. Ronald Siegel today about his new book, The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, Finding Happiness Right Where You Are. And we began the conversation with Ron's personal history, where it's kind of ironic that he's objectively an extremely accomplished person. He's a lecturer at Harvard, he's written a number of books, he's a very successful guy. And yet he identified being ordinary as an incredibly valuable resource for people. And some of that came from his personal history, where he felt that regardless of how much he accomplished, well, he just sort of wanted to accomplish more. He just wanted to have those hits of dopamine keep rolling. He was still looking around him for things to compare himself to. He was still feeling all of the ways that he felt that he fell short. So even as we rise and rise and rise through life, even if we are objectively very accomplished, even if we are objectively pretty out on the tail end of the bell curve, to use my dad's language, well, that doesn't free us from suffering here. It doesn't free us from painful social comparison. And we see examples of that out in the culture all the time, where there are these people who are objectively, overwhelmingly accomplished, and it does not seem to have freed them from chronic comparison to other people, often in very painful ways. And so I asked Ron, is this a cultural thing or is it a human-animal thing? And the answer is probably a little bit of both. There are certainly features inside of our culture that drive us toward excessive comparison with others, but there are also things that just come down to being an animal. Animals rapidly establish themselves into dominance hierarchies of various kinds, and there are a lot of evolutionary incentives for caring about our position in the band relative to others. And one of the things that can free us from this is accepting our ordinariness. Now, throughout the conversation, we did a lot of parsing of what ordinariness means exactly, because, of course, we also want to internalize our positive aspects and trust that there are good elements in our nature, receive those healthy narcissistic supplies, have reasonably good self-esteem, all of that good stuff. Most of the real problems that Ron talked about come from sorting people into dominance hierarchies and comparing ourselves to others constantly trying to figure out where we are in the pecking order. Accepting our ordinariness is just about aligning ourselves with reality. We're all unique, we're all special in our own way, and we're also all ordinary. We've all got our problems, we've all got these weird processes that happen in the mind. No one's without fault. So why are we holding ourselves to an unrealistic standard of constant accomplishment that can never be met? And orienting toward that ordinariness comes with a wide variety of benefits. It helps us lighten up about our own nature when we fall short, when other people fall short. It helps us calm the voices of self-criticism and critique that can live inside of the mind. And it can also help us create some separation between the thoughts that emerge inside of the mind and whatever we think of as ourselves, where these thoughts are things that are happening, not things that we are. And in this way, accepting our ordinariness can be a total relief. One of the benefits of this can be a little counterintuitive, and it's that we step away from the roller coaster of life. We're not chasing the high as much of people really pumping us up, telling us how special we are or what a great job we did. And at the same time, we're not falling to the lows, the slump that Ron described of feeling like we have really fallen short in a meaningful way. And instead, we're just 
kind of marinating in being good enough, being worthy just as we are. Ron talked about a number of ways that we can work with the myth of extraordinary inside of ourselves, and he broke them into three different categories, your head, your heart, and your habits. On the head side, we can see how our narratives around this are just kind of crazy, how we're holding ourselves to an unreasonable standard, how we've hedonically adapted to our circumstances and our current level of achievement. And we can start breaking down some of the stories that we have around accomplishment altogether. Then, in the heart, we can work with the emotional residues of previous painful experiences, particularly those associated with a feeling of a lack of belonging or really intense experiences attached to how we feel like we might have fallen short in a variety of different ways. And then in our habits, we can look at the tendencies that we have that pull us into excessive comparison with other people. For me, so much of this comes down to feeling normally worthy, accepting myself as I am while also understanding that there are probably some ways that I could keep on growing and changing for the better, knowing that because I'm not extraordinary in my goodness, I'm not extraordinary in my badness either. And there's something about that that to me is immensely freeing. That helps me get off the treadmill, drop the stone, and just release so much held tension related to excessive social comparison and connected to this whole territory. If you enjoyed this podcast, you'll probably enjoy Ron's book. Again, it's The Extraordinary Gift of Being Ordinary, and I've included a link to it in the description of today's episode. Also, if you've made it this far, we'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe to the podcast through whatever you're listening to it now on. And if you can, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and you'll receive a bunch of bonuses in return, things like transcripts of the episodes and expanded show notes where I go into the research behind every episode. Until next time, thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon.